Welcome to The Wondering Mind, a podcast where we have candid conversations in hopes to break mental health stigmas and normalize speaking up about our mental health. Through this podcast, we will connect you to a diverse range of folks from all around the world who have struggled with their mental health, but have learned to weather through the storm. By listening to their stories, you may begin to feel empowered, less alone, and you may discover new ways that will help you navigate through your own mental health struggles. So sit back, relax, and remember, everyone's story matters. Welcome to the Wondering Mind podcast. I'm your host, Emily Elizabeth, and joining me today, I have Adriana Garrett. She is a author, blogger, poet, and you're currently in school to obtain your PhD in clinical psychology. Yes. Very busy lady. For sure. <laughs> so I'm so excited to have you on the show today. We're going to be talking about a lot of things. I think our main focus is probably going to be learning how to manage rejection. Awesome. I'm here for it. Yeah. So thank you. I have so many questions. I honestly don't even know where to start. (laughs) So let's, I want to talk about, I want the listeners to get to know you a little bit more. So let's start with your books and what led you to become an author. Cause I see seven books. Yeah, I went through a period where I was kind of publishing one every year. Oh my and um, I have not been there in a while. <laughs> that's where I was. And so that's why I probably have so many at this point. But I started in college. I think I've always been a poet. Like poetry was my first love, essentially, in the sixth grade. So like in middle school, oh that was like my thing. And then I just kind of never let it go go and I feel like it just developed and went so well but poetry is you know niche it's like you like it or you don't and so it's a little small community there but my first few books were just kind of poetry collages thoughts feelings and stuff like that and my first was actually published um, my junior year I think or my senior year junior or senior year of college and I've since revisited and like revised it and republished it and everything. But um, my first three were essentially poetry collages. And then when I graduated from college, I told my mom, it was so random. I was like, I think I want to write a novel. And she was like, okay. <laughs> and I, and then I just started writing a novel. And wow. it was just very, uh, it took years. Like the first book, uh, my first novel was Southern Bells. And it, I would say it probably took me about three years to write that. And then I usually edit my own stuff that takes time. And so, and I was actually supposed to do a sequel and follow up, but then my spirit just wasn't in it. (laughs) I haven't done that. Like anybody who's read that book, they continue to ask me for another one. And I'm like, yeah, no, I think I'm officially not going to follow that up. Oh my goodness. um, I think the way I ended it, it's just, it stops there. Yeah, there's that. And then uh, recently, more recently, I did a couple other poetry collages and I've done a self-help book called The Love Trials. I started writing poems or like little blurbs about some of my relationships when I was mm. in college. And then I just kind of pieced those together and kind of build upon uh, my experiences and 
stages of of love and stuff like that. So that's where that came from, published that one. And then more recently, or my last book is called isn't it the one about politics? Yes, I don't respect your politics. I don't even know how that slipped my mind. That's like my favorite. And I reread it all the time. <laughs> like I reread it. <laughs> That's so crazy. Well, you know, it's so much information in my head. I'm, oh, yeah. I'm sure no. I get that. But um, yeah, so I don't respect your politics. It's the latest one. But I actually started writing that during the pandemic. Honestly, mm. it was before all of the social issues and everything that happened. So ironically, when I finished that one, it was during that time and I was like oh "Oh, how weird I didn't even know this was going to be a thing at the time I finished this book and so that got rolled out a lot of that publicity for that book just kind of got washed because I was in school as well so I didn't really just do anything with it but definitely always get positive feedback of what I have shared and what I do have available so those are out there I'm not I won't say I'm not working on anything. I tend to work on multiple projects at a time and then find the one that I want to finish, wrap up, and then just do it like that. So working on stuff, but between school and work, I I don't have as much time as I used to to write my book. I hear you. You're doing a lot. And seven books, though, already completely published. I mean, round of applause for you. Oh, thank you. Because, (laughs) Jesus. And the fact that your novel took three years. Oh, the first one, yeah. I'm so glad you said that because people need to understand that good things take time. Yep. You can't rush the process with anything in life, especially when it comes to writing. For sure. You mentioned that your self-help book was based off of your experiences with love and relationships. And I assume that the poetry as well also kind of was an outlet for you and helps you kind of cope and navigate with your own mental health. Oh, absolutely. That's what it was for. And it's funny you should say that when I started writing poetry, that's exactly what I used it for. As a teenager, you know, we don't know how to communicate things we see, experience. And I saw and experienced a lot of things within my family and some of those dynamics that I didn't know how to articulate that I felt were not natural, you know? And so then I just took to poetry to kind of release that. And I started writing a diary and journals and I've been journaling honestly, since like the fifth grade, but that's just always been my outlet. Like that's what I use for sure to help keep my mind clear. Yeah, it's wild because it's so different from when you're writing your thoughts down versus when you type them out. I mean, it still yeah. helps, but I don't know. There's just something about pen to paper. I have pen and pen. Yep. Like, I love it. <laughs> it's just like a brain dump, like a like you almost like feel it. Yep. It's releasing. Coming out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's Agreed. amazing. Agreed. So you started writing and that kind of became your thing. And that also helped you cope with mental health. And then you started to want to help others. So let's kind of talk about transitioning into that journey. And so, oh no, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh no, yep, okay. please. Because that's essentially how I have uh, AudreyWrites.com today because I pretty much wanted to bridge the gap. So I've actually lost a child. I was pregnant and then lost my son. I was five months. So it wasn't like one of those anticipated or within like the three month thing. It, it, it really affected me. And even while I was going through that, I had already had the blog established. So part of the part of me kind of really going full throttle into creating Audrey Rights and being more intentional with it was after that point in time. But prior to that, I really, really just wanted to 
I kind of feel like I'm a little wise beyond my years. Sometimes I was always the one giving advice to my friends <laughs> and all of my relationship experiences. I usually gave advice on that or my friends always came to me for advice on those types of things. When I first started the blog, it was called Truth to Speak before it turned into AudreyRice.com. And it just essentially was me having those conversations without like talking about who I was actually talking to <laughs> or where the conversation came from because I was like this is stuff people actually need to know and even if they don't read it today like you know this is something that I wish somebody would have told me before I experienced stuff so I just wanted to have a place where everybody could come and read whatever for whatever situation they were going through or whatever they were experiencing so what started out is more of a relationship and love focus and self-love uh, and all of that it also shifted into like encompassing mental health as well and so I talk about anxiety I talk about depression I talk about on top of relationships and everything, there's really something for everybody on my blog, just depending on what you need. That's just kind of how I got there. I, once I started really getting involved, because uh, I got my second master's in, um, in psychology around 2015. And once I did that, that's when I started kind of bridging the gap between like the relationship stuff and mental health on my blog. Now with me pursuing clinical psych, it's just become more of a thing. And I, I think more of the technical side uh, of my writing, of course, I've been writing for years now, so I'm so much better than when I started, but <laughs> it's so funny for me to watch that too, but uh, as my writing progress, yeah, uh, yeah, for sure. But um, yeah, as I continue to write, I think I get a little bit more technical now with mental health stuff because I, I appreciate knowing what I know but I also know people don't have the same information that I have and so what what I really try to do is make it as plain as possible so that it's relatable for everybody and not in all these technical psych terms but just really basic and understanding for like everybody on all levels so that's where I am. That's where the blog is now. Um, I don't write as much as I want to. My goal is usually to do one blog a month, but like this month I'm moving, I'm actually moving to Minnesota. So what? I'm like, oh relocating from Texas to Minnesota and, you know, I have school and everything. So I'm like, ah, if I could get a blog out, great. Usually when I do, I'll schedule them when I have time to just do a couple. Um, but I, it's, it hasn't been, I haven't had that kind of time in a while, but yeah. So um, the plan is to have at least one a month, but when I don't, I feel like there's still a wealth of information there for you oh, to read. Yeah. That stuff the, is never irrelevant. Yeah. It, it's always, always relevant. I love that you, you stated when you were writing your blog, because you have such a wealth of knowledge and you have a different perspective mm -hmm. on mental health and healing and relationships and just a lot of different things it's harder for some people to come and read something about mental health if they haven't done some of the work, if they're not in that same headspace. It's really important because for them to be able to get there, yep. you have to simplify it and, you know, kind of generalize it so that everyone can kind of relate yeah. and understand. And that's really hard to do. I mean, that's not an easy no, but very well said. That's exactly what it is. Because you honestly have to be in that point to be ready to receive that information. And a lot of the feedback that I get was like, oh, you just posted this blog. I swear I just went through this. Like it was right on time. But sometimes people read stuff and it's proactive and they're they're like, oh no, like I really got that. Like this makes a lot of sense. And so 
I do realize it is difficult to put it in that headspace, but I think when I, I use my voice, I usually typically write as if I'm having a conversation. Mm -hmm. So when I think about that and I think about my audience, I'm very thoughtful about my audience when I write as well. So I just try to make it as easy to absorb as possible. I try not to overload some of the posts, just, just give you enough to get through that piece I try to separate things out just enough for you know if to be focused on one task or one lesson or one thing so yeah I'm very thoughtful about that for sure yeah that's amazing because again in order for people to begin their healing journey or learn about mental health or even be comfortable with the idea of any of this they have to be able to kind of understand and grasp the concept so the fact that you're making it proactive in the sense where they'll be able to do that is really cool you said something too about comfort I think that's another intention of mine even though it's not highlighted is that we need to get more comfortable with the fact that mental health is a real thing and it's something that's normal. It's not normalized, but it needs to be because mm-hmm. it's not one of a scary monster in a closet. Like it's not something like we should be afraid of or just not talk about, you know, until we experience it. It's like the more we talk about it, the more we educate ourselves, the more we can combat it in a healthy way. But we're not doing that now because we're not having those conversations. Exactly. Being proactive is so important because you can reduce so much stress and anxiety and depression and all different types of things that you might experience if you just talk about it or educate people on it. And yeah, normalize it. And it's just through conversations. But unfortunately, for some reason, our culture is so hesitant and scared. And the thing that they're the most scared of crazy enough is feeling their own feelings yeah no seriously I think your writing and having these conversations can help them recognize it's okay (laughs) yeah it's okay to feel that's normal and I think it's funny you should say that because one of the projects I'm working on is called (laughs) unemotional guide to emotions right Mm. so that's a working title but that's what it's called for now and it's my approach to the whole myth that men aren't emo like people aren't can be unemotional right that's not a thing <laughs> like no. everybody has emotion and so I'm trying to play on words but essentially it's addressing the fact that everybody's emotional like you're not exempt you don't you have feelings like it's gonna be a thing and so that's probably the one I'm furthest along with and need to finish it was supposed to be the next one I was supposed to publish but yeah I might finish that you you reminded me of the project yeah you should do that because people need to know uh, I could go on a whole tangent. Oh, no, no. Next, I'll, I'll hold off. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. So let's transition even further into your career specifically. You worked in child protective services, and this can kind of lead us into our conversation regarding managing rejection. But I kind of want to just have you walk us through just a little bit about your experience and what you saw when it came to children specifically learning to cope or navigate through rejection and then also kind of how it affected you. Yeah, you I'm already that- making a face because I've, I've, oh my God, I felt so deeply for the children. I call them my kids, but the that. kids that I supported during that time. So just a little bit about 
CPS, there's different divisions. When I first started, I was in a division supporting uh, keeping a family unit together. I would go assess the home. Obviously, there was a, a concern. So we would provide them services, best services to get them to reduce any risk of any issues in the future. I did that for a little over a year, and then I transitioned into adoption. So I went from working with kids who were in their home to kids who were not in custody of their parents. So that was a huge shift. I will say, even when I was working with children in their home, there's still an element of coping and rejection with that because a lot of the families I supported there was, if not domestic violence, substance abuse. Mm -hmm. And children, I think one of the, this is one of my most memorable experiences. I had to articulate to my parents that the kids know. I think parents automatically assume, oh, they're kids. They're not paying attention. They, They don't know I do this. Once I illustrated to the parents that the kids know, and it took me sharing details of what the kids shared about where the substances were, how often it was eye-opening for the parent and for me I'm getting chills as I'm telling the story this story I like this is a moment like I never forget I'm sitting in their living room I can picture everything the dad just started crying he immediately just bursted into tears like oh my god I cannot believe my kids know that I do this you know and at that point everything shifted his intention with working with me shifted like the resources I provided them, I got them all the support, all the help that I needed. But I typically had a great, great response from my families and left my homes always feeling like they won't get another, you know, referral or they'll keep CPS out of their life. Mm-hmm. But that family actually affected me a lot. And it was because the dad just really, really understood like his kids see they know and they're affected by what he's doing. And I think that that helped that family dynamic. That aside, when I shifted into working with children who were not in their homes, just affected me just as much because I'm essentially their parent. I'm their caseworker. I'm the one that they see the most. And so I'm the one that they trust the most in that situation to make sure they're in a home or they're in a permanent placement that's going to benefit them in the long term. And I had several children, some of which, you know, I had to... I couldn't get adopted. I had to replace back into the foster home that was best. Some of which I moved foster homes because the foster parents were terrible. And I've also had successful adoptions, right? Some that I've adopted and they were just so happy when I left them. They felt safe enough that they were like, okay, I don't ever have to see you again. You know, I used to have some kids that look forward to make sure I'm staying committed to my visits and everything that I told them. But once I found them a good placement, they're perfectly fine. So very, very, very emotional job for sure. Extremely emotional. I had to really learn to compartmentalize and not take every child's experience on me. Um, But I also, during that time, made a lot of connections with a lot of children and supported them as best I can because um, them, I've had children see their parents overdosed had to take them call the emergency like these kids were experiencing real trauma with no therapy like none and they were just expected to keep going and keep going and it was just like I don't know how y'all still doing it I see why your behavior is terrible and then 
for me too, just from an education standpoint, I had to work with teachers and stuff like that. And I'm like, I know what's going on in the kids' home. I can't divulge all the information, but I'm just like, it's a reason why, you know, like they may be doing this behavior or there's always a reason. There's always a reason. Yeah. Every time. So it really uh, put into perspective for me, like how children act in school versus what they're experiencing at home. Um, What are actually going on in homes, you know, that is just not safe or not okay. That's just portrayed as normal. So very eye-opening, just, oh God, that was, that was an experience for sure. Working with CPS. I can rewarding, but it's, yeah. (laughs) But I'm glad that it's comforting to know that you are one of the people that were working for CPS because I've heard such oh yeah Mm -hmm. mixed reviews about how America goes about our foster care system and CPS, as you well know. Um, So I'm just glad that they're perfect system. No, Um, man, yeah, I couldn't imagine. I'm such an empathetic person that I would get so sucked Same. into all that but those are the kind of people that we need in those jobs yep, are the absolutely people <laughs> yeah so and that we're like, the ones who don't do it because the money right. I mean because the money is not great oh so, no yeah it's like and you never do that job because of money you do it because you want to help yeah sure which is wild because those are the roles that should be getting paid well I yeah. guess or to an extent because although you know then it gets to the point where maybe the wrong type of people would end up in those roles but reg- agree, yeah but or regardless you know I feel like it would also be a motivator for people to want to you know help more and and yeah. tackle and that stay, and stay yeah. turnover and rate stay. Is yeah which is which is leading us into managing rejection because I yeah. feel like these kids get so attached to their caseworkers yeah. where they potentially can and they've already experienced so much trauma and they don't have enough outlets or resources to get them through. So having that support from the CPS individual who comes in from their caseworker, but then having a turnover rate and then those people leaving and then never seeing them again. I mean, that's, that's traumatic in itself. That's like major separation, anxiety inducing. That's just can lead to so many different things. So did you ever have to sit down with these children and kind of teach them how to manage rejection at any point in time or what was the extent of your capacity with that yeah I'll I'll say one child comes to mind he was one of my special kids when I got his case he had probably been in a foster home for like a year or two Mm. the family had kids in and out he was probably one of the more consistent ones but he had a hard time adjusting to having more people in the home and feeling like he was still being seen so he was kind of managing rejection in that way feeling Mm -hmm. like his foster parents weren't really present for him because all these new people coming in and out so I had to have conversations with him about that he also had mental health he had some challenges with school so I had to navigate a couple different things with him but I remember telling him to to just be okay with who he is and understand like everybody's not against him, Mm -hmm. you know, and part of me gaining his trust was for him to understand that I was here to help him find a permanent home, a forever home that he was actually going to be happy in and safe. And I told him at any point, you don't feel safe or you're not comfortable or happy, you know, you let me know. And as we were having some of those conversations, 
you know, some other things were brought up and I got him some supplemental help and stuff like that. But once he started gaining my trust, I think he started seeing or having somebody that he could trust in. I think he started to see like, okay, I'm looking at this a little bit wrong. You know, sometimes like it's not that they just don't want me, but maybe we're just not a good fit or there's a dynamic that I'm not considering. And that's honestly, he was about seven or eight. Oh and so it sounds like an advanced conversation. It really does. I'm talking about it wow. for such a young child. But I don't take away like what he's experienced because mm -hmm. he's experienced way more than I ever saw at seven or eight. And so I think that's why he kind of understood or was looking at life different. And he would often ask me like, why doesn't my mom want me or why, do you know, rejection with all types of relationships. And I would just tell him, you know, she's I think she had substance abuse. So I'm mm -hmm. like, she's just has an illness she's sick and she can't support you so you know like part of my job is to find you a place where you can do those things so it was having those conversations that people don't like to have with children essentially I had to have in a in a way that made him a little bit more understanding of why he was in the situation mm -hmm. that he was in because I think a lot of those kids act out because they have no clue why they're there like yep. they get taken from home a lot of them at young age and then they act out then they get moved around, but nobody's told them exactly why or put it in terms that they understand they're there. And so I think that that helped him with a little bit of his rejection with his mom and, and then experiencing some rejection with his foster parents. So, yeah, no, I've had to have those conversations. And for me, it looks a little bit different. I'm watering it down a little bit here because without going into too much detail with specifics, mm -hmm. but obviously it's tailored specifically for that child and their mm -hmm. experience. Um, but for sure, I've had to have that conversation several times and, and that's a hard one. Um, but he's one of my success stories because he essentially was placed in a permanent home. That was amazing. They're, they're great awesome. people and, um, he's thriving, he's thriving. And so, um, but when they, when he got adopted, um, he <laughs> wrote all this stuff for me, but anyway, <laughs> I was That's like, let so me make sure you're safe and happy and everything. And he's great. Like, and they treat him like a normal child. They're able to accommodate all of his special needs and, and everything. So yeah, it's, it's when it ends up like that, it's great, but getting there is, was a challenge for sure. Yeah. It sounds like the main lesson when it comes to managing rejection, kind of across the board and correct me if I'm wrong or if you disagree, but is learning how not to take things personally yeah because like you said with so many of those instances it had absolutely nothing to do, to with do as a person or individual. nothing not a single thing it was the other individual who was struggling and if they can't hmm, I say this all the time if you can't take care of yourself you're not going to be able to take care of others yeah so I mean, that goes for relationships when it's monogamous or polyamorous, anything, yeah. friendships, parents and kids, coworkers and bosses, like any type of dynamic when it comes to humans. If you are not in a good headspace where you can't even take care of yourself. You're setting it for failure. <laughs> yeah, then, then nothing is going to succeed. And humans we need connection in order to survive and thrive. So it's just 
really unfortunate that we're set up in a society where we don't have enough mental health resources. We don't have enough support. People are still turning to substances to cope. And it's just this vicious cycle of trauma that we can't seem to get out of. But at the end of the day, like managing rejection sounds like learning not to take things personally. Yeah. It's, 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 honestly a concept of expectations which Mm -hmm. I talk about a lot you know um we set unrealistic unrealistic expectations all the time all the time and I don't like the older I get the more I just shy away from having expectations at all those will set you up for extreme disappointment and failure and just really deep feelings that you probably could avoid if you just didn't expect anything and then we live in a world that's very self-serving, right? We're, we're, we're just encouraged to be self-motivated, just focus on ourselves, what we want. And yes, self-love is great. All those things you should be present, but we're also just, we tend to think it's just us. Our opinion matters. Only, it's all, we're only one yeah. person operating and everybody needs to be considerate of us, but we're never considerate of others. Exactly. And so- Part of that too, I think, especially with rejection is that it's okay if somebody doesn't like you. Why would you expect everybody to like you, right? If you don't go into it with the expectation that everybody's supposed to think you're beautiful and cute, and then why would your feelings be hurt because somebody doesn't like you? They wouldn't, right? Yeah, that's just because it's not a thing. Like I understand. And I think for me, I've been able to manage rejection in relationships since because I understand I'm not attractive to everyone and that's okay. Exactly. I don't get offended by that. I I mean, I think that's a normal thing, Mm -hmm. you know, so, but no, for sure, especially with social media being now a new thing and and image and consciousness, social consciousness, it's just a whole, it's just a lot. It got real messy real quick. Yeah. Yeah. Really quick. Actually, like it was like over time, it gradually almost like brainwashing in a sense, like the more powerful social media got, the bigger it grew. And then it just kind of exploded. And then that's where all the insane, unrealistic expectations fell into place and are now like permanent in a sense. Uh, It's operating that they think that's normal. It's not, it's not normal. I can attest to, especially when it comes to relationships, because I am working out of being a codependent individual when it comes to relationships, because I have a lot of anxiety. It's like a whole thing. But I know a lot of individuals can relate to that. But what you just said is when you learn to change your perspective and recognize that, okay, well, are you attracted to everyone? Yeah. Do you like everyone? Is everyone of perfect vibe for you? Like, do you have similar things in common with every single human being that you come in contact with? Absolutely not. So it's like when you meet someone and you know, you have these high expectations of this is going to be the perfect partner for me, or, you know, I thought this friend was going to be like such a, yeah. yeah, the best person I've ever met. And they turn out not to be, it's like, well, it's not your fault though. Yeah. That's who they are. And you, you're who you are. And so it's like, it's so hard for people not to have those expectations though, because they want it so badly, I guess. Yeah. How would you, exactly it? Yeah. what, what's like a suggestion or a tip that people could start to integrate into their thought processes where they can kind of 
reduce those expectations? I'm trying to think how to articulate this best. Yeah, it's really hard. <laughs> it is. A, it's it's a little tricky. I really am just open, and I think it comes with the, being more empathetic and mm-hmm. being just more understanding. Like you don't operate this world alone. You're sharing space with other people outside. You know, outside of your personal home and Mm -hmm. stuff like that so just being aware that how you move how you act how you respond all of that affects someone else you're not the only one being affected by somebody else's actions you Mm -hmm. know or somebody else's thoughts feelings emotions so I think you said it best it's more or less perspective just giving yourself the room to consider Mm -hmm. like it's not just you somebody else has feelings or you know this situation could go a lot of different ways or whatever the case may be, but it's not, it, it, it's not at all, always my fault. It's nothing that I potentially could have done differently. Everything happens the way it should happen. And I, I mean, I personally feel like that I don't force situations or interactions or things like that. So I kind of operate kind of, I guess, more free spirited, like going through mm-hmm. life, but yeah. um, I, I kind of encourage that because then you don't have those expectations. Mm-hmm. Then you're just kind of open to receiving open. and experiencing what whatever it is. And whether somebody's in your life for a minute or two days or whatever, I honestly look at every encounter as valuable. Mm-hmm. I learned something all the time, whatever it may be, whether it was a hard lesson, whether I got angry or frustrated, maybe I learned that I don't like that type of energy or I don't mm-hmm. like that type of vibe and maybe I should not be around that in the future to help me stay from that you know uh reacting that way mm-hmm. or I don't know this was a good energy or a good vibe and maybe I should do more of this um to help with my mental state I felt good in that way so I think it's recognizing those things that make us feel great um and kind of just making that more of a habit so you get in more of a mindset it and you're in more control over how you feel and how you navigate throughout your day versus not feeling in that you have control over that I think sometimes people don't feel like they have control when they actually do mm-hmm. so that's another perspective shift mm-hmm. but um yeah hopefully I haven't gotten too far off topic no not at all you answered my question <laughs> yeah I feel like it's and it's easier to do that the more you take care of yourself Mm -hmm. and the more in tune you are with yourself. For me, for example, when I stopped drinking alcohol, not that I was drinking every single day, but it was still clouding my vision when it came to connections that I had with friends and romantic partners, because I was utilizing that as a social tool to get me through my social anxiety. And every time I would encounter certain people, I would end up in situations that had I not been drinking, I would have been able to tap into myself easier and more Mm -hmm. clearly and recognize "Mm, this vibe is way off. What am I doing? No, this is not a thing. And then I've been in so many situations where I've ended up in relationships because of starting things off like that, where time passes and then I get too comfortable and then I stop listening to my intuition. I stop Mm -hmm tuning into what the vibes are and what my true energy is telling me, you know, whether I should leave or whether I should stay. And it got messy and complicated and more difficult. So I think 
the more level-headed you are in the beginning, the more in tune you are with yourself in the beginning, the more you take care of yourself, the easier it will be for you to recognize that rejection is just redirection and it's nothing personal to you. Agreed. You hit a key point, self. Like I'm such a huge advocate for self-awareness, self-love, self-just piecing that all together. I think that's part of our great one of our great social crises is that um Mm -hmm. we rely so much on what other people think of us or we sit in others expectations versus really even knowing who we are what we want how we feel what we need and the more you're able to figure out all that stuff the easier honestly it is to navigate through life like things just won't bother you like people don't offend you it's just kind of like oh okay that's how you feel that's fine like that's kind of where I am at this point I'm so in tune with who I am what I want like what I need I can articulate to someone what I need out of love like how how to actually love me in the proper way Mm, and I think that that's a challenge that many of us don't have which leads to a lot of conflict in relationships and a lot of times when people I'm not a therapist yet but I swear I feel like I do this all the time <laughs> I'm always having these conversations but I was telling uh one friend of mine and she was asking about her partner she's like we're not ready for marriage and I was in I think he's gonna propose but we've been together I'm like okay where are you I mean if you want to be married like what would be the reason not to right oh, well, he doesn't know X, Y, and Z. I said, oh, well, have you articulated that to him? Do you, have you told him what that looks like? I said, the, honestly, people don't understand some of the biggest issues with relationships. One is communication and two, mm-hmm. people thinking someone understands what they say when they have no clue what they mean. So yes. I'm like, just ask them, like, <laughs> what did you hear me say? Like that was, a, honestly, me and uh, one of my exes who I thought I was going to be married to college, we did therapy. And that was one of the things that they told us that stuck with me. It was just kind of making sure you guys understand what the other person is saying, you know, essentially like, what does that mean to you? Or what did you hear me say? And then when you sit in that space, then you realize, okay, maybe I didn't communicate that as well as I thought I did. So let's revisit, (laughs) you know? And I think that that bridges the gap and helps people like really understand like, okay, well, I thought I, I heard something totally different or even using, I heard you say, you know, what I heard was, I'm like, oh yeah, no, that's not what I meant. I think conversations and conflict gets resolved a lot easier and faster when you kind of take that approach, because a lot of times we think we say stuff and it's not coming across. Totally translated the wrong way. (laughs) Which again comes with knowing yourself and being able to articulate, articulate and feel comfortable enough to articulate your feelings. It gets so complicated and messy. You know, if you end up in a relationship where the other person doesn't want to receive what you're trying to communicate, it's really hard. And if you're not in a place where you can not take that personally or let that go, Mm -hmm. then it just, it's like this vicious cycle that continues. But again, I think the more you work on yourself, the more you understand that rejection is not personal. No. The no. better you'll be able to navigate through. It's still going to be really hard, but you'll be able to navigate it with a clearer head, I think. For sure. And then you're able to say, oh, well, it sounds like we shouldn't be together. Mm-hmm. Or it sounds like this is not going to work mm-hmm. based on what you're sharing, what I'm capable of. And it's mm-hmm. okay for us to yeah. walk away. 
it's okay. And it'd be amicable. It's just not okay. Yes. Yeah, like okay. we have one life to live. Why yeah. are we gonna live it miserable with people that make us upset and angry and depressed and anxious? Like no 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 no. Yeah. We've done that for far too long. We've we've tortured ourselves long enough. Like it's time to start taking control, tapping in and recognizing we all deserve better. We all deserve to work on ourselves. And if we can just do that and have these conversations, yeah. everybody's going to be happier. It's a win-win. <laughs> agreed. Agreed. Absolutely. Well, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on the show today. I could literally probably just sit here and talk to you for another hour about all these things. There's just know, so right? much. <laughs> like You're just so easy to talk to and you're just a wealth of knowledge and all the experiences that you have. I've never had anyone come on the show yet who's worked with children like that or worked in cps and that's like mm -hmm. a whole other thing that honestly i feel like we should dive into more yeah um and have more conversations about because uh, that's a whole beast in itself it um and it all revolves around mental health but everything everything yeah, everything yeah that's why ultimately i think it's weird that why well, I, I look at it and think it's weird even though it's not weird i think mm -hmm. that's my purpose but i'm essentially getting my phd so i can open free clinics and oh that's i think especially after i work working for cps i realized we struggle we struggle with the services we provide we struggle with how we provide them mm -hmm. we struggle with timelines and everything and so my solution to that was essentially just trying to open as many free mental health clinics as mm -hmm. possible because if not then we will continue to have the same vicious cycle a lot of people that are homeless have mental health a lot of people on substance abuse have mental health issues that are just not addressed or family rejects them, don't take that seriously. So I think, of course, trying to normalize that more by having more mental health clinics and making it more accessible to everyone is just kind of my little one way of helping. Oh no, that's that's not little, that's that's big. <laughs> I feel like the world is huge, so I don't know how quickly I'll be able to touch. Hey, if but, you can just start with your yeah. community, because that's one thing that I'm super passionate about. I live in Louisville, Kentucky, and our homeless or houseless community has infinitely grown over the years. And I went to an event. It was like a young professionals event, but they had some panelists that were representatives of the city. And I asked them straight up, I said, what are you doing within the millions of dollars in your budget that you have to provide mental health, to create more mental health resources and to provide more housing for the houseless? And they had no answer to give me the only answer they gave me was they had a certain amount of uh, budget set aside to I think build maybe one more or add on to an additional um, homeless shelter currently and they even admitted right then and there to everyone that there still won't be enough beds but as far as the mental health resources and what they were going to do or if they were going to include that into their plan and budget nothing so the fact that you're willing and yeah. so inspired and encouraged to open free clinics within your community, I, like that makes me so happy because yeah. again, a lot of the issues that you said, like those people can't afford it. No, they can't, they don't have the capacity to set nope. up an insurance plan. They, they don't have a job. Like, how are they going to get insurance if they don't have a job? How are they mm -hmm. going to get insurance if they don't have money? How are they going to get insurance if they don't have families supporting them? 
if they're by themselves. So it's like, if you have free clinics, they can go there, start the process, regain their lives, regain control, get back into society. Boom. But for some reason. Yeah. It's like, we assume like everybody has the same access. Mm -hmm. even though We know everybody doesn't have the same access, but if it doesn't affect you, then people aren't going to put it as a priority but it's affecting everyone because the city in general specifically here like we have derby here obviously every year in may and i just remember driving downtown around that time it was just a couple days before and there was this growing community over on this like grassy knoll area leading into downtown and it was always packed lots of tents they minded their own business it was fine and i drove down there and they were gone And it's like, they had just cleared everything out and I have no idea where they placed the individuals, but they do that every year before Derby because they want the city to look clean. Oh, wow. And it's like, you, you know, there's a problem because you have it in your mind to make sure it doesn't look like a problem when other people come, mm -hmm. but then you're still not addressing it to the fact, to the point to where you have to do this every year yeah it's crazy versus yeah so it's like when you think it's not affecting you it's it's affecting you like believe that it's affecting you absolutely but that's amazing and I can't wait to see where you go with your books and your poetry once you get settled and you got you know know. you got to show yourself grace like you're doing a lot here you know you'll eventually get back to that creative flow like if you've already written seven books like I have no doubt in my mind that yeah, I get all ideas all the time. I don't think writing that's I feel like that's my natural God giving gift. Yeah. I, that's the easy for me. But so I'm never without ideas or inspiration. But I think I've prioritized school at this point. And mm. so that's just kind of that just Absolutely. takes precedent. 100%. Um, this PhD is hard. I don't think I realized how hard it was going to be, but it's a lot. I'm committed. I committed to it. So I'm going to stick you with can it. do this. I can do it. <laughs> I yes. have to give myself that pep talk because sometimes I'm like, why do I do this? Why? You're like, I can't do this. I can't do this. <laughs> <laughs> why? Why am I doing this again? Because you want to make the world a better place. I you, do. And, I would love to make the world a better place. And I love meeting people like you who are so set on that because that's my mission too. And it's, awesome. again, we're empathetic individuals. So it makes it even harder for yeah. us to do that. But you're going to get your PhD and it's going to be incredible and you're going to do great. great things. Yes, for sure. Well, thank you again for joining me. And I know you mentioned earlier in the conversation that folks can go to your website at www.audreywrites.com. Are you also on social media? And if so, where can the folks find you? Yeah, I'm on Instagram and probably antiquated Twitter. I still use, (laughs) uh, I don't do TikTok, but everything is at Audrey Wrights. So, and then I have Facebook as well so everything I think that's backslash Audrey Wrights everything is Audrey Wrights so it makes it a lot easier but all links are on my website as well so if you go there then you're able to access everything but yeah feel free to follow interact I respond yeah that's good because some people don't so that's nice (laughs) it's a real person (laughs) well thank you so much again for joining me on the show today it was a pleasure speaking with you no awesome time I've only done a few of these but again I always have I enjoy them so much because I have such good conversations so I appreciate 
you having me for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. And thank you again to the listeners for tuning in to another episode of the Wondering Mind podcast. Until next time, maintain your brain and keep on wondering.